1: Along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, you know Carol is the Executive Director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, also serves as the Chairman of the Board of the National Council on Aging, and spends a lot of her days working on senior-related and caregiving-related issues. And every week, we bring you Caregiver SOS On Air, talking about issues that relate to families and caregivers. Today, we've got a very special guest, Carol Lorna Scott, speaking to us from Canada, where she has written about her experiences as a caregiver and how she made the interesting discovery she needed to take care of herself, a problem a lot of caregivers overlook.
2: And I, I love the, the title um, of her of her blog, Walking the Journey Together Alone, um, which, you know, it's very descriptive, and, I, and I, we're excited to have her join us.
1: Well, we look forward to talking to her in just a couple of minutes, and we will welcome her on board, Caregiver SOS On Air. And now uh, I've got an interesting question for you, uh, and it makes so much sense. I'm surprised it hasn't been done yet. And that is, why in the world are not family caregivers unionized?
2: Well, that They is, work for free. That's a great question. And, in fact, there was recently a blog in the Huffington Post by one of their senior writers. Uh, it was by Ann Brenoff. And she points out that we've got this entire workforce working for free, and for very little gratitude, uh, and that a union might be a good idea for the 34 million family caregivers in this country um, that don't get paid anything. A- and she really paints a picture of, of, of what it's like to be a caregiver. She said that sitting in traffic becomes me time, and that strolling through the grocery store alone It's the same as a spa day, just in terms of, you know, being able to have some downtime and time to think and just kind of be by yourself and recharge, which is kind of a scary thought. Um, But that just shows how demanding it is. So her six reasons why she says family caregivers should have a union. And the first one is so they can get paid. Because they're working for free. You know, one-third of family caregivers spend 30 hours a week caregiving.
1: And many of them give up their entire well, income. So that's
2: either they have to quit their job or they've got two full-time jobs. Um, Medicare doesn't reimburse them for anything. Medicaid has a couple of programs that reimburse caregiving. So if you're low-income, you might get some help for the family. But if you're middle-income in the United States, there's really nothing for you I'd unless like. uh, unless you, for some uh You know, serendipitous reasons somebody bought long-term care insurance way back when. And even then, it might not necessarily have um, funding for family caregivers to keep someone at home. So, you know, the only thing that's standing between most family members and a spend down to Medicaid is the family caregivers. So she says pay us. That's number one. Two, uh, reimburse us for our caregiving expenses. Wow. Uh, you know, family caregivers spend a lot of money, almost half spend at least $5,000 a year on caregiving expenses. Five percent spend up to $50,000 a year. That's but just money that pocket. goes out
1: to help care for their Care recipient.
2: That's right. And so if I was to hire someone to take care of my mother, that's about $45,000 a year. A nursing home's $80,000 a year that you pay until you they run out of money, you run out of money. Um, so reimbursement for caregiving expenses for other family members who are trying to chip in to make home last a little bit longer makes sense. Um, legal protections for families, uh, caregivers in the workplace. You know, family caregivers are not a protected class. And she was talking about some different stories where an employee was fired when he was asked to take some time off to care for his um, father, who was ill. Uh, Another was fired because they said, the company said they paid enough for his ailing wife. She was on the company insurance, and he got fired. Wow. Because they didn't want to carry her on the insurance. That would be a
1: law against that.
2: Um, And so she's saying that this is um, family-related discrimination. So there, you know, we've got a Family Medical Leave Act. It only protects a certain uh, immediate family members it's not everyone it's not for every organization you and have to it's, be a larger company and it's limited it's limited and it's and, not compensated right and so you know people get fired because they're trying to do their best and take care of their family members um, number four is make up what caregivers lose in Social Security um, you know we know that, that Social Security and lost wages If A caregiver can lose up to $303,000 a year. um, And I'm thinking, wow, does this sound, all of this sounds so negative. But, I mean, these are really valid issues that a lot of caregivers out there, you know, need to take into account when they quit that job, when they take on that caregiving role. Um, And so if you're going to lose $303,000 and you don't get your Social Security, why can't your quarters spending... Full time caregiving should count towards Social Security. Uh, You know, I know my family members would benefit from that. You know, I'm all for it. Um, And, um, you know, it's important. So get us some help. There ought to be some programs more than what we have in the limited nonprofits in the philanthropic world, like Caregiver SOS, but even more, we don't offer respite. We can't pay for respite for the caregivers. Uh, And sometimes they just need somebody to fix the meal, provide the respite.
1: In fact, our guest is going to have a chance to talk about that, Lorna Scott, when she joins us in just a few minutes.
2: Well, and the last one is, as you know, family caregivers are a lot like the military. So military GIs, uh, when they have disrupted uh, their work life by going to serve in the military, they get paid to do some retraining when they get out of the military. But caregivers who quit their jobs and stay out of the workforce for years Don't get any retraining. So can there not be a fund to help caregivers learn new skills, get back into the job market? Um, And, you know, she says if she was running for president, (laughs) because we had an election recently, that, you know, she would also provide free medical care uh, to everybody because caregivers would, you know, probably die before the person that they're taking care of. And she says caregiving is the toughest job you're going to be ever asked to do, and she thinks they need a union. So I like it. I thought all good points. My So hats off if you'd like to read it. It's six very good reasons why family caregivers need a union, and it's in the Huffington Post. So take a look.
1: Now, here's a question for you. If you want to feel better, dot, dot, dot,
2: what do you do? All right, so we just had this, you know, these are all the, the, the burdens that caregivers have. Um, what's the one thing that doesn't cost anything and you might actually be able to eke out a little bit of time maybe if you're a caregiver uh, to feel better and that's walking. So there was a really, it was kind of a funny uh, study actually. They got 232 undergraduate students and they had them um, either walk in a, in a pleasant place or in an unpleasant place or sit in a pleasant place or look at pictures of an unpleasant place. And then they measured, you know, their mood. And what they found was it didn't matter if the walking, you know, the walking elevated their mood. No matter what? No matter what. Even if it was in the dull, boring, ugly place um, compared to those that were sitting, they even told some of the walkers, you're going to have to write a two-page paper about walking and how come you think it changed your mood. And, of course, which was not true. But that was to give them something really negative to see if that would affect the the mood elevation. It didn't. Even the threat of a, writing a two-page paper did not dampen the elevated moods of our 232 undergraduate students. So apparently walking, you'll go out, you can eke out 15 minutes or five minutes, five minutes, five minutes, or get a treadmill, you know, all, the walking part is what helps you feel better.
1: I remember signing papers when I was teaching as an adjunct at UTSA. And the first question you always got was, how many pages, professor? Yeah, and, and no matter what you said, it was too long.
2: Yeah, there's no right answer there's to no that. There's no right answer. I'm just, you know, now all the teachers that tell my son who's in college how many words he has to write. You know, thank God the computer counts that because it always sounds like some horrendous thing. And you're right. like, oh, oh, it's just a two-page paper. It's oh, about it's 250 a
1: pages of words a page. Right, so right. That works out. Yeah,
2: so we have to count You words. just
1: joined us. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. On 9.30 a.m. The Answer, I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zernial. We'll be talking with Lorna Scott in just a few minutes. Her book, Walking the Journey Together Alone, Finding Peace, Hope, and Joy in the Middle of the Caca. I like that.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's some symbols in there. Yes. Yeah, that's the, that's the American translation of her book.
1: <laughs> From Canadian. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Now, what if you or someone you know has mild cognitive Impairment. Well, what should you do?
2: You know, this, this was another really interesting study that we came across because um, about 135 million people are predicted to get some sort of dementia in 2050, but a lot of people are already experiencing mild cognitive impairment, which may or may not lead to Alzheimer's. But that's that forgetfulness. You're starting to have signs that you're not functioning at, um, at a really unacceptable level uh, with MCI, so mild cognitive impairment. So there are some Australians out there, uh, and they did a study um, of people that had already had mild cognitive impairment age 56 to 86. So, you know. It's a
1: big spread. You
2: know, a lot of people start manifesting signs of mild cognitive impairment pretty early, and that's the scary thing for those of us who are also (laughs) caregivers, because we're all convinced, you know, something worse is coming. So they did a study, and they they put them in a weightlifting program, and th- what they found was fascinating was the more weight that the people with mild cognitive impairment were able to lift, and they had them work up to it, start small, work their weights heavier, 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 the hippocampus in the brain actually functioned better and kind of inflated in size, so it grew, it's like your brain is a muscle too, They they're not really sure why, but there was a relationship huh. with the ability to lift weight and improvement in memory function for those with mild cognitive impairment.
1: I wonder if that includes lifting thirty eight pound infants.
2: I think lifting thirty eight pounds of anything. I mean I'm thinking about my five pound weight I lifted at home and you got a thirty eight pound kid. Can you see, done. my wife
1: uh, Gina will carry both boys, thirty-eight pounds each, down the street. Unbelievable!
2: I can remember the days, you know, kid under the arm, yeah. and your biceps are like, ooh, right. I, you know, big guns. Yeah. So, um, for those of you out who have access to small, thirty-eight-pound children, that's a really great way to, you know, to to help your brain. But I, 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 you know, if for those of you who have or think you have mild cognitive impairment, you're caring for someone with some memory problems, if they are able to you know, participate in a weightlifting program where you increase the weight to about 80% of their capacity. We're not trying to kill anybody. Um, You want it to be something that's doable and you want to increase it, which is what they say is great for osteoporosis and it's great for your brain too. So if you want to help your hippocampus, that's going to be my slogan, help your hippocampus, lift some weights.
1: does having the hand weights in your closet count?
2: Um, or do you
1: have to lift them?
2: I, You know, I'm not sure, but I feel pretty certain you actually have to lift the weights, not just look at the heavy weights.
1: I can tell you where they are.
2: You can, just, you can point to yeah. them. <laughs> All right, well, drag them down. you, you know. got to
1: drag them out and drag them down.
2: Drag them out, drag them down. Um, and this is from the Center for Healthy Brain Aging at the University of New South Wales in Adelaide, Australia.
1: Well, we're going to pick up with our guest here in just a moment. Lorna Scott will join us from uh, an amazing little place in the world, Medicine Hat, Alberta, Canada. We're going to find out about that as well coming up next on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. We're on 930 AM, The Answer. It's that time of year again, Medicare's annual enrollment period from now through December 7. It's a very important time for you to review your benefits and make sure you are on the plan that is best for you. At WellMed, we understand that all of this can be very confusing, so we work with people who can help you. The annual open enrollment period is a short one. Make certain you have the plan that is best for you. Remember the deadline is December 7th. For more information about WellMed, or how to get in contact with a licensed insurance agent to review your health plan options, Call toll-free 292 360 That number again, one 292 360 It's Medicare's annual open enrollment period now through December 7th. So here's a tip for you if you happen to be passing through Medicine Hat, Alberta, Canada. Please stop and say hi to Lorna Scott. She's joining us now on our Caregiver SOS on-air hotline. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Uh, Lorna, among other things, is a lecturer, a speaker, a, uh, uh, really someone leading the way in helping caregivers understand that they're really not alone and they need to take care of themselves. And we're delighted to welcome Lorna on-air. Lorna, good to talk with you.
3: Hi, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm really excited.
1: So tell us how you got into the business of writing about, speaking about, talking about that journey called caregiving.
3: Well, my, my journey started on September 30th, 2006, when my husband was diagnosed with colorectal cancer. At least that's when I thought my journey started. I hadn't realized I actually was a secondary caregiver when my dad was sick oh, about 15 years before that. So I've learned that along the way. My most intense experience, though, was with my husband and his journey in cancer. And uh, the, the title of my book, which came from my blog, The Walking the Journey Together Alone, came from the moment that we had met with the surgeon after he had his colonoscopy to confirm that, yes, it was cancer. And when he asked about survival, the surgeon said, well, you've got a 50-50 chance of living five years. And I was absolutely horrified and devastated. I couldn't believe that that was the news. And my husband looked absolutely relieved. Relieved? And he was relieved. I didn't know for a number of years that he had actually watched the colonoscopy. And so he saw the tumor. And he was convinced he was going to die in three months. So when he heard 50-50 chance of five years, he was
2: relieved. Huh. Interesting.
3: Uh, because, well, he thought he had more time, but it was then, that moment, that I realized that we were on the same path, and we were connected at the hip, and we're definitely a we, and yet there was a lot of things that were different in that journey. And where I was alone, because everything focused on him, as it should, that's, what our medical practitioners are there for Uh, and yet I was such an important part of that care team and um, I was assertive enough to make (laughs) actually make them I think um, allow me to be part of that care team it took a lot to stand up for myself and uh, not take over which is kind of what I do sometimes so it, it was a bit of aloneness through that and We found out the cancer metastasized uh, in 2008, and sadly he passed away in 2011, uh, living two years longer than uh, we had any hopes that he would live. And I credit that to being conscious and intentional about what we did and learning to embrace our, our joy and to really live as much as we could, and I swear we lived in those three years, more than most people will live in their lifetime.
1: How old was he when he was diagnosed?
3: He was 44 when he was diagnosed and 50 when he passed away.
1: That's awfully young for colon cancer.
3: Yes, it, it is. And, and um, you know, hindsight's twenty-twenty. 20, 20. Uh, He didn't get screened. And his mom had actually had cancer colon cancer when she was 46. Hmm. She forgot that. She thought she was over 50, so whenever her doctor talked to her, they never were alerted that her three boys should have had the the pre-screening. Right. So had he had that information, um, you know, I- I'm convinced he would be alive, he would have been caught.
2: Hmm. Well, you know, there's recent research that shows uh, caregiving caregivers of people with cancer that it's a much more intensive experience than caregivers, you know, even with Alzheimer's, where it's it's uh, m- much longer term. Uh, that this can be a very intensive experience, and, and 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 that you really are doing exactly what you said. Everything is about the person with cancer because you're going through this really uh, this experience together, and, and it, you have this limited time frame.
1: As you took a look at that period of time and and that diagnosis. Uh, he was relieved. You were absolutely shocked, maybe catatonic for a moment or two. Did did you talk about that with him?
3: I it, it seemed to be likely a, a while later when I would would find out why he was right. relieved, and um, so okay. that took a, a little while. We had many discussions about how it was different, uh, and I for for each of us, and yet I think the, the conversations always ended up very similar to many households throughout the U.S. and Canada and the world, in that the caregiver would do anything to take the pain and the illness away from the person they're caring for, and the person they're caring for thinks that the whole um, experience is harder on the caregiver. It, it, and I, sometimes I think when we talk about supporting caregivers, that we don't always look at that and uh, the impact on the person we're caring for and that that conversation can also happen and and knowing that they think it's harder on the caregiver uh we don't uh, at least my experience has been that sometimes our ears close off when they say that
1: now you you write about walking the journey together alone uh, how did you come up with that and what do you mean by that it seems obvious but i want to hear it in your own words <laughs>
3: Now that I mean, it was through that, that six years from the time that we had a different perspective on, on his prognosis, whether he was happy because it was more than three months and I couldn't believe that I might lose my husband before he was 50, and going through that, uh, supporting him through treatment and medication and all the ups and downs and almost losing him a year and a half before he did pass away, I felt alone. A lot in what I was going through and part of that was because we had moved to a new city and within months he was back in surgery and he was back in treatment and we hadn't built up our own social networks there we had more acquaintances from work and and mine were very supportive but I was alone in what I I did a lot physically uh, with with some visits in between but my concerns and my fear because my fear and worry was about my future and in some ways, it, his were too, but he wasn't going to be there to plan, and it interrupted my work life. It interrupted our social life. It, I mean, it brought us together as well. But the, the, I was a control freak. I, I wrote a chapter in my book about that. So that was likely. I chose to be alone when I look back at it, because I wanted to be the control freak.
2: Well, and that's the you know that's the the hardest part for for us control freaks you know is, is especially as being hit with a situation we can't control and then you're just and we're desperate to exert any control we can over that.
1: How old were your children at the time? You have grandkids now, right?
2: Uh
3: Yes, my children would have been twenty six and twenty four at the time.
1: So they were grown. And
3: they were grown. They were adults. Uh, my daughter had been married. Um, well, she she got engaged in between sort of the initial treatment and when we found out the cancer had metastas- metastasized. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I mean, one of the most memorable moments uh, was uh, having a conversation with her at one time. We were out watching um, Phantom of the Opera at our local theater, and we both loved the show. and And it was a, a nice time for us to take a break. From some of the craziness, and we talked about whether or not it would be possible for my husband Callum to become a granddad before he passed away. And at this point in time, we weren't looking at uh, the the terminal part of it, and so that conversation, you know, I kind of, we had it, they talked about it, they'd just been married, it would seem like a crazy idea, and then after he went through two brain radiation treatments, and we, we knew that he was limited in time and at that point thought we'd be lucky to see six months to 12 months. And Christmas morning, he was given a gift from my daughter, which was um, a picture frame with a little picture inside of a stork carrying a baby saying, I will arrive on June 24th, 2009.
2: Wow. And so your husband did get a chance to see the grandson.
3: He, he did. It, that turned around. We really thought he was like within weeks of passing away. And I think a lot of that was due to the radiation more than, uh, with side effects. But it looked tough. They told us he was dying. He'd be lucky to see the summer. And he lived to see Kate, um, Kate's second birthday. We had that on the palliative care ward. That's where his birthday party was. Uh-huh. Four days before my husband passed away, we had this little two year old driving his tricycle up and down. Um, the hallway.
1: That's uh, cool. Um, so, so tell us. I mean, is, go ahead, I'm sorry.
3: I was going to say that's just how we chose to live. We had moments to make and memories to make, so we, we grabbed onto everything we could.
1: Well, that's what I was looking for in terms of folks who are listening who are caregivers or who will be caregivers because we're all either going to be a caregiver or a care recipient at some point. Uh, what would you recommend? What are the uh, things that you teach in your workshops?
3: For for caregivers, yes. I think, I mean, I, I talk about these, these highlights and these memorable moments. It took some change in thinking to get there. It's about really knowing who you are and what would be the best moment you could have. And that's going to be different for both the caregiver and the person they're caring for. And some of those moments are going to be the same. And where you can plan, and I, I teach a peace formula that talks about planning and, and making those decisions about what is it, what do you want to do on your own, what would you like to do as a couple or a family, what is important, and engaging the resources you need to have so that you have, whether it's human resources, you need somebody to come along and help with medical, whether it's financial resources to make a wish trip come true, uh, whether it just whatever it is, time from work, and then getting into action and getting those resources put in place, it might mean that the first resource you get is help getting those resources in place, having compassion uh, for when things don't go as perfect as you wanted them to be. Now hold and that thought. That
1: that hold that thought. We're going to come right back to you. We're talking with Lorna Scott, uh, author and lecturer who talks about caregiving and caring for the caregiver. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zernail on Caregiver SOS on air at nine thirty a.m. The answer. We are checking right along here on Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernial. You hear us on nine thirty a.m. The Answer podcast. Of all of our shows are available as well. Just go to Caregiver SOS. Dot org, and you can find our podcast. Lorna Scott is with us, a Canadian who has written about and talks about the stressors of caregiving, family time, and saving money, and she's telling us about her own experiences as well. Uh, Lorna, a- and I-, I know you've got a, a virtual summit coming up November 14th to the 19th, which is just around the corner. Tell us about that. Well,
3: this is a, a virtual summit called Today's Caregiver, Who, and it was... Uh, the brainchild of Leslie Cattrall-Simmons, who is a a caregiver coach out of the U.S. and will be also featured at the National Caregiving Conference in Chicago in early December. I was lucky enough to be on uh, a different virtual conference where I got connected with her. It's a very exciting moment for me because I think it's a well-rounded summit. There's uh, people and experts there on talking about dementia and looking for the person inside that elderly body. Self care, pre planning and legacy planning. I talk about conscious caregiving and that that inner game. So uh, before the break, we were talking about the peace formula. I I go steps before that in in getting back to the heart of who you are and and closer to the true self of the caregiver. So that they can maximize their their strength and their power and their energy to get through that caregiving journey. So that's what I'll be talking about on the summit.
2: Well tell us a little bit you've mentioned the peace formula a couple of times tell us uh, specifically what do you mean by that?
3: The peace formula? Yes. Um, it, it's a, a formula to um, uh, I guess to make it a little bit lighter is to make those wishes come true, to make some of the dreams come true, whether they are making it to a special anniversary or having family come to visit two big wish trips. One of our wish trips was to Scotland. Um, And so the P is the planning, the E is the engagement of the resources, A is getting into action, C is compassion and E is enjoying the journey. Uh, So I take people through exercises in each step so they can get more clarity on what that is and get out of the kind of that hamster wheel in the brain of thinking they can't make things happen. I do believe with some intention and planning, it can. Uh, What I have learned in teaching this is that sometimes I have to go um, and a little further back and help people kind of clear off the plate um, and really dump the stuff that's, that's bogging them down and figuring out a way how to delegate it or dump it um, or do it or, you know, just um, get rid of it.
1: Well, what would be it, examples of the stuff that bogs us down?
3: For caregivers, yes. uh, I think they, a lot of it's the day-to-day uh, things that it's keeping up with the schedules. For working caregivers, it's trying to make the boss happy, your colleagues happy, getting your work done and having your performance uh, as, uh, to a standard that you like. Uh, for a lot of the working caregivers as well as it's the things of having to choose between watching your son play basketball and going to make sure that your parents are okay or a sudden trip to the ER the finance finances can bog us down um, before the break you were talking about you know the enormous impact of caregiving on our pocketbook the time and especially the holiday seasons time is 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 precious we're tugged in a million directions even the person in everyday life who's not impacted by caregiving is impacted by time crunches in november and december
1: Uh, in in canada is it the same situation as in the states that caregivers uh aren't compensated get no respect get no help from the state
3: Uh, that varies from province to province uh there isn't enough Absolutely. Uh some of the one of the perks that we have, although it is for um, terminally or palliative care, is uh, our federal government uh just almost a year ago introduced legislation that would give caregivers job protected leave for twelve months. Um not paid, but it is protected. So some sort and of protection.
1: It's like Family Leave yeah. Act here, but, uh, so three months but for is caregivers. Months, right. Yeah.
3: Right. Yeah, and, it, you know, the, the provinces get to decide how they implement that. Um, it, it's, it gets complicated. Uh, some provinces do have, you know, uh, some compensation for self-managed care. It might be $400 a month in some provinces. Uh, I know in Alberta, Alberta is often one of the last ones to uh, accept any of that type of policy. I think we were the last one to accept. To ex- actually pay for compassionate care even for six months uh, paid hmm.
2: well and I think you bring up a good point because in the United States um, one of the things that we tell caregivers is you know Medicaid differs from state to state and there are better places to live in the United States if you have got and you know if you're dealing with somebody who's frail or ill or disabled and you know has a disability um, you know the, the laws in the different states really can have an impact on what is offered to you as a family.
1: That's where Oregon comes to mind.
2: I <laughs> It's certainly, it very rarely if, is it Texas. People flocking to Texas should flock somewhere else.
1: If they need that kind <laughs> they, of help. If they really sure. are looking That's for right.
2: some sort of Medicaid because we just don't believe in it here.
1: Now, in your own case, uh, Lorna, most people will tell you they sort of fell into caregiving. You mentioned that you were a secondary caregiver for your dad. And then became a primary caregiver for your husband. was it anything you thought about that you thought you'd end up doing, or did it just happen
3: oh well I'm thinking with my with my dad and and my mom now is eighty six and remarried um, so I've got an eighty six year old stepdad who lives seven hours away and so my my journey's going back to being that that caregiver, whether it's secondary or at least from a distance but when I think back to my dad. It. I lived in the same city, so I was able to support my mom. I don't think I did it good enough. I don't think I realized how hard it was on her uh, at home when he was hospitalized. I could see the stress, and and did my best to support her. And, but I thought it was normal. I I was working shift work because I was in, in dispatch at the time, and I would go on my after my first day shift, after my second day shift. I usually miss the third day before I went on nights uh, because I was sleeping, and then I'd go during the day after I got home after my, my last night shift. And I did that. Uh, now, I, own, I mean, I, I'm going to downplay this a bit. I only did that for four months or five months, mm-hmm. which was long enough. But I never thought that that was abnormal or that I was a caregiver or that I would need any support. It just became part of our life.
1: Now, you were working as a 911 operator at the time up in Canada? Yes. Do you remember getting many calls from caregivers looking for help?
3: Oh, tons, and um, I mean many, many distraught caregivers, and I mean sadly many calls when at the time that somebody passed away, and lots. I would say there was a number of of calls where. It was a progressive disease or a terminal disease that uh, we would get repeated calls, you know, every month or every few weeks um, because of of the crises.
2: Well, I'm going to shift gears for a second and ask a question, because, you you know, when you talked about walking the journey together, but you also talk about finding peace, hope, and joy, and you mentioned that you lived very fully uh, a, a lifetime in a compressed period of time in a few short years with your husband. So, you know, what are the examples of some things that you, that you did and how, what difference did it make for him and what difference did it make for you to really look for living life fully while you were facing this illness?
3: Well, I mean, we had lots of advantages. So this might not be for everyone, but it might give them some ideas on where they might not have looked to be able to live fully. My husband had a, a good job with some private insurance through work, so that was one thing that helped us a lot. Uh, one of the things that he wanted, uh, I didn't remember him ever talking about this throughout the early years, but my kids did, and he wanted to have a Porsche Boxster. And that sounds outrageous, and it sounds outlandish, and yet it cost less than what my 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 car did, which was brand new. Because uh, he bought one that was ten years old. You no, know, it sounds uh, like I mean,
2: a it sounds like a guy you know, thing. You know, now my husband's totally <laughs> on board. He's got the twenty forty Porsche, so I'm, he's he's there, right there with you. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, you know that the Porsche is one of those things that um, you know I'm 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 in the process of letting go. It's been a, a bit of an emotional attachment, and it's been five years. I, I've been ready to let it go for a while. My kids haven't. We we had you know had an unexpected. Um, income tax refund, which helped with that. But if I'd never asked him what he wanted, I would never have known. And our daughter, who was 24, uh, it, I, it must have been about grade two, I found a picture of her of, that she had drawn of this car with a penguin in it, and what she had put was the penguin was having a pizza party in the Porsche. Huh. So obviously, P was the word or the yeah. letter of the day. Um, <laughs> and I'm, so I'm thinking she had to have been in grade one or grade two. I don't remember him talking at all about that. But that was his lifelong dream. And he, you know, we, we found one within a, a budget and the, really the budget was small um, for, for that wish. Uh, I, I chose to go into to debt because I knew that I was going to have an, there was some insurance policies. So that was my, my choice was, to take from what I would have received after to give him the opportunity and give us as a family. We were able to take our family to visit his relatives in Scotland. He he immigrated here when he was seven, so he hardly saw these relatives, and it was important to him that our children meet his 92-year-old grandmother. Uh, again, it was coming up with what is important, what do you want to do, and Figuring out a way to make it happen—it wasn't always easy, and I was scared many days that we'd never, never get it done. And some simple things, having his fiftieth birthday, where we invited a—he had seventy-five people come to his fiftieth birthday party, um, and and that was so special f- for him. It was it was absolutely precious that he had friend high school friends from two provinces away come to see him. So it wasn't all about. Spending money or taking trips. It was finding out what was important for him and, and for us, because I got to keep the memories, and that's all I've got now.
1: Now, did you sit down and talk about uh, th- this refined bucket list? Is that how that happened?
3: Yes, that, it, that's exactly how it happened. He refused to call it a bucket list because it's so the bucket list so final, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah, I understand. You don't
2: have to do that. But just about what do we want to do next? What yeah. do we want to do next? Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. And and we planned in three month increments because those were we had follow up tests right. every three months. So we we got the go ahead. We planned You know, we usually plan six months out, but most intensely mm. three months. But I mean, that the car was one of those things. He said, "We can't have one. I can't have one." And I said, "Well, look, like I didn't know if we were going to have one, but you don't know unless you look and." I I, I'm cool. a full believer in the law of attraction, and our thoughts attract things. So when you start looking, and he had a great tip a, a few years earlier that you don't buy a new one. You buy one that's, that's used, and we bought one that was 10 years old. Um, well, my, Scott, yeah, I've got, 10- I got, I got,
1: I got to stop you right here. We are flat out of time. If people want <laughs> to get a hold of your book, Walking the Journey Together Alone, how, how do they find it?
3: Well, the best place to get it is on Amazon.com and I'll be sharing this in Canada. So it's on Amazon.ca. There's European distributions as well. Cool. It's on my website, thecaregiverslighthouse.com, um, if they want to order through the website, um, as well. All so, right. uh, lots of places to get it and the virtual summit, uh, look, look up today's caregiver virtual summit and they'll find the link for, for learning lots of, new, interesting things Lerna coming Scott, up on
1: Thank you. Got to November pull the plug. 14th. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you again soon. I hope you take care. Bye-bye. Lorna Scott thank talking you. about her experiences as a caregiver and experience with her husband. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Up next, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman. It's that time of year again. Medicare's annual enrollment period from now through December 7th it's a very important time for you to review your benefits and make sure you are on the plan that is best for you. At WellMed, we understand that all of this can be very confusing, so we work with people who can help you. The annual open enrollment period is a short one. Make certain you have the plan that is best for you. Remember the deadline is December 7th. For more information about WellMed or how to get in contact with a licensed insurance agent to review your health plan options, Call toll-free 292 360 That number again, 1-866-292-0360. It's Medicare's annual open enrollment period now through December 7th. Well, we are rocking along right here on Caregiver SOS on Air Time now for Take 10, which follows each and every one of our Caregiver SOS on Air programs when nationally known psychotherapist Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us, an expert on caregiving and addictions as well, along with our co-host Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. And Carol, you've got a pretty good topic here that spins off something we were talking about earlier with our guest here on Caregiver SOS on Air. What in the world do you do and how do you handle it when hope and joy comes in the middle of all the stuff that goes with caregiving.
2: Right. So caregiving, you know, for, particularly if you're in a, in a difficult situation, someone with cancer, someone with Alzheimer's, late stage Alzheimer's, um, you know, pick an illness, ALS, multiple sclerosis, somebody that's really it's just a very physically or mentally demanding caregiving situation. Um, and we were talking to Lorna about uh, how, you know, she was trying to find peace, hope, and joy in the middle of all this blackness and darkness. So does that even make sense, Jamie? You
4: know, it, it actually does. Um, interesting enough, we always come at this healthy caregiver or non-healthy caregiver um, from an assumptive place. So we, we usually see caregivers being surprised by caregiving, like a two-by-four, you know, hitting them at the time when they least suspect it. And and also, disproportionately, people have not taken care of their mind, their body, and their soul um, their spirit if you will um, once they become a caregiver so we kind of take it i mean i say we the collective caregiver organizations around the country that people aren't as healthy as we'd like them to be as they enter this extraordinarily difficult time that most of them tend to neglect themselves but there are those who have actually done what they were supposed to do that actually did see a therapist that has some balance in their life that is receptive to find good uh, or the, the glass half full instead of half empty. And, and actually, I believe that that's the person you're talking about in this segment.
2: So, you know, it seems very yin and yang, uh, hope and joy, illness, imminent death. You know, is there some truth to the, you know, uh, to you can't appreciate the good unless you have the bad? I mean, do you have to have both? Is it you? Know, I'm just trying to figure out. You know, how do people get to a place when they're they're only surrounded with bad that they can lift themselves up and see the good?
4: Well, that is a, that's an interesting thing. It's um, disease and sometimes um, you know extraordinarily challenging times, like being a caregiver, um, confusion, lack of concentration in your life, not you know not being healthy. These are all sort of lily pads, if you will, if you can look at it like that. As to uh brighter times ahead, that the tunnel actually is not going to remain a tunnel, that things will get light, i mean i've had a challenging time this year, even with myself and 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 the, you know medical challenge and and it does get pretty bleak uh, and and as I was sitting with my therapist and speaking to my therapist, you know he said, Jamie, there you would never be able to appreciate the good times until you really work as hard as you're working to emerge from the difficult times so the yin-yang theory that you're mentioning, Carol, is uh, it's pretty valid here. Do I
1: understand you correctly? You've got to have bad times to have good times?
4: Well, to appreciate good times, certainly you, you need to weather the bad times. And uh,
1: huh.
4: uh, when bad times paralyze you and and you cannot move and cognitively you're kind of circling the drain and looking at life in, in very negative terms, um, it's very difficult, Ron, to get to appreciate any good times. but yeah, well, you wave HIPAA.
1: Can you wave your hip and let us get your therapist on for a show?
4: Oh, I would love to, actually. He's been like a part of my family. I would have absolutely no problem him. Well, I may have some problems. I'll have to definitely firewall some stuff. But but uh, Dr. Dominic Callahan would be a, a wonderful guest oh, that's on this cool. show.
2: Because well,
4: he has gone, gone through a lot.
2: Well, you know, what I heard um, you know, this particular guest talking about was that you know she recognized she looked around and she said we are in dark times now let's create good memories you know because when we get when i get to the end of this when we when we get to the end of this i want to make sure you you the person i love and am caring for that you lived all you could despite the illness and that when i look back i don't just see illness in my rearview mirror
1: he had colon cancer and really a, not a lot of time left to live
2: so right. so, so you know so it's I guess the question is, um, you know, can we, we intentionally can we create um, a, a clearer space to be happy, to live fully, um, even though we are doing that, you know, with illness and death as our companion.
4: We are, and there's coping strategies. I'm not taking anything away from your guest at all because I think your guest is extremely powerful to see life like that. But I do believe that if you're given a, a a diagnosis where there is absolutely, you know, unfortunately, no, no, no answer for it. That's um, that's going to death is imminent. Um, there is a little bit more of an opportunity of acceptance, of of awareness, of being able to let go, to know that you're powerless over your loved one's illness, and that this is hmm. going to be. Let's make the best of the situation. I do think this is very circumstantial sort of type of things, that not all caregivers have that. In fact, many caregivers live in the nebulous world, as I don't know what's going to happen, you know, and so they do have a different look at this.
1: Now, hold that thought. We're going to come right back to you. If you just joined us, you're listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel. And she did say something, Jamie, that was fascinating. When they got the diagnosis, the doctor said, it's colon cancer. Maybe you got five years. Maybe. He was incredibly relieved because he thought he had it and thought maybe he had three months. She was devastated.
4: Yes. Interesting. Interesting. I just had a friend of mine pass in the same way. He just went and found out he had stage four. Now he was in a program of recovery. He was a 30 year recovering alcoholic who really believed in the program and that he had to let go and that life is unmanageable and he had to, you know, spiritually enter some other world of, of, of hope. And he was much more the inspiration for his wife who took it devastatingly Mm. uh, difficult. But for those people, for those caregivers, I mean, there are real coping strategies of, of that they must still enter to get to where your guest is. So not all people kind of enter this world like, like your guest, but that doesn't mean it's not attainable. I mean, if they, they follow simple steps, if they take fam, friends and families up on offers to help, if they get engaged socially with their own life, if they, you know, basically start small in terms of taking care of their lives and, and, and go to doctors and, and exercise, if you will, at home and, 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 and if they find some passion of something they also love that they can have as a parallel experience to it, um, things like that, taking a walk with your loved one and stuff, think there's strategy to get to where your guest is at. I do believe your guest, however, was, you know, quite healthy prior to. And, and I, I, I do think that also the inspiration of her loved one and his acceptance. Um, really gave her a light at the end of the tunnel.
2: Well, you know, I, I thought um, it was interesting because she was, uh, for her, she was worried, what's life going to be like without him? And what he was worried with is, how is she going to you know, what's her life going to be like without me? So they were both you know, really, she was On the was same worried. page. She was trying to make sure he didn't suffer at all and he didn't see her worry, but they were really both worried about the same thing, which is why she was talking about being together, but being alone, because obviously he wasn't going to be there in that future. Um but, you know, just that the idea, though, of, of, of planning, of deciding, you know, just accepting reality. I think that was it. I mean, he accepted the diagnosis, and he was happy he had more time. Um, and she came to accept it and said, all right, the reality is we're going to plan in three-month increments, so what fun, good thing are we going to do this three months? You know, what can we do in the next three months that is something you want to do that we want to do together or as a family?
4: They did a
1: series of bucket lists, but didn't call it a bucket
2: list. No bucket list, but three-month increments. So, yeah. you know, didn't, I really yeah, like that strategy.
4: I do, too. I, I think that, that's you know, sometimes when we get older and we live with somebody a long time, we think it's love and there's hostile dependencies and people are angry and I think that they just both saw this particular thing, um, out of their narcissistic heads. In fact, he got out of his head thinking about her. She got out of her head thinking about him. And at some point in time, they met in the middle, middle to manage their levels of stress. And, um, and they did this together and they were realistic. And, and it feels to me that, hmm. you know, water found its level with, with them. And, and I think that if you do let go and if you can take care of yourself, um, I think this happens and can happen with many couples.
1: That's pretty cool. And seeing a therapist wouldn't hurt.
4: No, 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 no. I think as, you, as you're as you going down this road with your loved one, it's a wonderful path. But I do think that you always need a place where you can absolutely become confidentially sort of disclosive about what it's really bringing up in with you. So you don't have to belabor it with your loved one. Um, so you can find a place where you can give yourself credit and not have to live this world of guilt. So you can actually say what is authentically on your mind about the process, clear it out, leave it in a place where the person you trust, and then come out again and resume this, this, this reciprocal sort Perfect. of way of acceptance.
1: Flat out of time. Thank you, Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. Thanks for joining us on Take 10 and Caregiver SOS On Air.
0: You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.